Scripture reading for today is Numbers 24, 1 through 19. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters, Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. His kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and it is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and he shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, And like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell you, your messengers, whom you sent me? If Balak should give me his house of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am giving to my people, come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and bring down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities." Let's go before the Lord this morning. Father, you are the one about whom we sang. You are holy, holy, holy. You are God Almighty. You are the one who was and who is and who is to come. You are the one who has chosen to put your blessing on your people Israel and now on everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You are the steadfast God. You are the faithful God. You are the immovable God. You are the unshakable God. You are the trustworthy God. You are the hope-worthy God. You are the one on whom we can build a life and then rest. You are the one who does what he says and says what he does. You are faithful, O God. You are steadfast in your love. And Father, above all things today, I pray that the truth of that would seep into our minds, seep into our hearts, seep into our way of life. I know, Father, that many of us believe those words. The steadfast love of the Lord is sure. But I pray that we would feel it today. I pray that we would build our life upon it today. I pray that we would unite our hearts to fear your name because you alone are good and you alone are unchanging. You alone are firm and solid and trustworthy. So please come now, Father. The God of revelation, the holy, holy Almighty God who sits on the throne and smiles upon his people in Christ today. Come now, I pray. Teach us and lead us in the way that we should go. In Jesus' mighty and matchless and merciful name, I pray. Amen.
I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. And it's a question that you'll probably have an immediate answer to. Maybe, maybe you won't, but probably you'll have an immediate answer in your heart to the question. But it's a kind of question that you really need to take some time later and prayerfully ponder and think about because it's, it's probably a little more complex than it seems on the surface. And the question is, is simply this. What are you putting your hope in right now, really? What are you putting your hope in right now, really? If God was to answer that question for you, if God was to look at your life and give a word about what he thinks you're putting your hope in and how you're living your life, what would he say? Where is your hope right now? Where is it residing? Where is it planted? Where, where is it rooted in right now? Some of us in this room would give the, a typical Sunday school answer, right? The typical Sunday school answer is three words. God, Jesus, or the Bible, right? If you're in Sunday school, you don't know the answer, try one of those three, you'll, you'll probably be right. And for some of us who would say that, it's not just a Sunday school answer, it's true. We're far from perfect people, we're flawed, we're, we're, we're sinning all the time, we're making mistakes all the time, we're rebelling against God all the time. Our hearts are not totally united to fear his name yet, but we really are seeking Christ. This week I've struggled with some things in my life, but this week I have also fought to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. I've struggled. He really is my treasure. It's not just something to say on Sunday morning and impress people. I love Jesus Christ. He saved my life in 1986. He saved many of your lives at different times. And you love him and you are pursuing him. You care for him. You want him. You love him. It's true. It's really true. You're hoping in him. But, but the truth of the matter is that even for those of us who are hoping in Christ, we're not fully formed yet, right? We're, we're not fully mature in Jesus yet. And the truth is that there's parts of our heart that are still hoping in things other than Christ. It's just true, if we're being honest. Things like family, possessions, 401ks, retirement plans, financial security, safety and security systems, hobbies, whatever it is. There's other things that we're hoping in. We hope in Christ, yes, but we're hoping in other things. And so I want to ask you again, search your heart. Ask the question. Lord, ask your Father. Father, what is it that I'm really hoping in right now? How do you see it? I know, Father, maybe how I would answer the question, but, but give me insight. Lord, when you look at my heart and you see where my hope lies, where is my hope lying for real? Don't be afraid to ask God. Don't be afraid. He might reveal some things to you that you don't want to see. That, that's true. I know he does that to me pretty often. But our Father reveals in order to transform. He reveals things to us to make us be more like him. Amen? Satan reveals stuff to condemn us. God reveals stuff to change us. Satan reveals to crush our joy. God reveals to exalt our joy, to increase our joy in him. Amen? It's the kind of father we serve, so don't be afraid to ask the question. This is going to sound like a, a bit of a, a Sunday school answer as well, but it's really not. I want to say a word about what we ought to be putting our hope in and why we ought to be putting our hope there. We ought to hope in the steadfast love of the Lord alone because the steadfast love of the Lord alone is the unshakable, immovable rock of this life. There's nothing else like the steadfast love of the Lord. Those words, steadfast love, they are used 255 times in the Old Testament. And, and as words go, that's a lot. I'm a guy who, who looks up words in the Bible for a living. That's a lot. That's a lot. In the NASB, it's often translated loving kindness, or if you're reading the NIV, it might be unfailing love or just love sometimes. Behind that word is a Hebrew word called chesed. And chesed means heartfelt faithfulness to a covenant. It's passionate, desirous I want to kind of love. I want to be faithful. I want to be committed to you. I want to pursue you. I want to forgive you. I want to increase your joy. That kind of a love. It's a faithfulness that wants to be faithful. It's a, it's a faithfulness that wants to do what it said it would do. So when we talk about the steadfast love of the Lord, what we're talking about is, is the reality that God does everything he promises that he will do without exception. No exception to the rule. When God says he will love, he loves. When God says he will bless, he blesses. 
When God says He will increase, He increases. God is not a yes God and then a no God the next day. Hot one day, cold the next day. In a good mood one day, you wake up on Tuesday, wow, God's grumpy. He's not like that. He's not a a this and that God. He's steady. He's firm. He's immovable. He's steadfast. When He says something, He means it, beloved. He means it. The steadfast love of the Lord is the rock of life. It is. There's another word that gets used in combination with that all the time. Steadfast love and faithfulness. That word faithfulness in Hebrew, I love it. It literally means firmness in the sense of like it can't be moved. So God is steadfast and he's firm. He's immovable. He's unshakable. No wind, no wave, no tornado. No explosion of a sun in the, in the universe or the, the collision of galaxies can move God. The greatest, most powerful forces in the world cannot move the Lord because he's firm in the sense that he's unshakable, immovable, steadfast, faithful. Faithful. He is the anchor of life, beloved. Everything else around us is changing. Isn't that true? Change, 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 change. Jason, last week at our uh, community group, you were talking about, you said even while he was sitting there teaching our community group, the cells in his body were changing so that his skin was transforming from one thing into another right before our eyes, right? It's kind of a microscopic thing, but if we could see the cells in our bodies, I'm not even scientifically speaking the same man I was when I began speaking the sentence. Change, 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 change. Everything's changing. I'm changing. You're changing. Literally, the molecular structure of the floor is changing. The sky is changing. Change, change, change. God is unchanging, beloved. There's one thing in the entire universe that's unchanging, and that is the Lord. And that's why I say the steadfast love of the Lord is the only anchor for hope in this life. That's it. There's not another anchor. Well, you can put your anchor in other things, but I'm telling you, that thing's going to drift, right? It's going to drift. It's like anchoring your boat to a buoy that's not anchored to something else. You might be anchored to something, but you're going to drift. But God, if you anchor yourself to him, you will not drift. The steadfast love of the Lord is the steadfast anger of our hope, period. So what are you struggling with today? You got problems in your heart, problems in your home, Problems with your extended family, in your neighborhood, at church, at work, in the world. You don't like the presidential election or what, something that's going on in the world. What's, 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 what's the thing that's troubling you today? Well, I could never imagine to dream about, even in a small group like this of 150 or so people, to, to imagine how many problems walked in the room today and what the solutions are to all the problems. I could never imagine. But I can tell you this. If you will hope in God, God has the solution to your problems. And in time, if you will fight the fight of faith and put your hope in God rather than in anything else, he will help you to see things as he would have you to see them. Some things that are troubling you will fade away completely because God will say, listen, that's big to you, but truth of the matter is it's not really an issue. You're really worked up about who the next president is going to be. doesn't really matter. Whoever it is, I'm still God. I'm still on the throne. Amen? Other issues will remain. Other issues are really issues, and God will have wisdom for you. But the key is to anchor your hope in the Lord. Until the anchor is set right, the wisdom cannot flow. So let us hope in God today. That is the heart of the message for today. We're going to look and see today in in Numbers really a stunning example of the steadfast love of the Lord, and then I'll try to relate this back to our lives again. So if you'll turn with me actually to chapter 20, we'll start at chapter 20, work to the end of verse uh, 24, and then next week we'll bring our time in the book of Numbers to a close. God Almighty in uh, faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to Moses and even to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. He was now leading his people into the promised land, but you'll remember that they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled, and so he punished them, and he confirmed the position and the authority that he had granted to Moses and Aaron as prophet and king in Israel, respectively. Because of their many grumblings, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that many people in Israel actually lost their lives. They died because instead of walking by faith in God, they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled against him who is mighty and merciful. And so God took some of their lives to discipline them and to teach the people a lesson. Because of their grumblings, 
the Lord forbid an entire generation from actually entering into the promised land. And you'll remember that everybody from 20 years old and up, he said, you will wander in this wasted desert for 40 years and every last one of you will breathe your last breath and you will die in this desert without seeing the fulfillment of my word to Abraham to give you the land of promise. And God is faithful to his word even when his word is a word of discipline. The Lord was merciful to these people. He provided for these people even after he had rebuked them like this. And I told you in the last couple of weeks, I think once or twice, that God did pardon their sins. It says in Numbers 14.20, God pardoned their sins. That grumbling uh, generation of Israel did receive the mercy of God still, but they also received his fatherly love and wisdom and discipline even though it was severe. Now, when we get to Numbers chapter 20, we know from other texts, it's not really apparent when you're just reading Numbers at full speed, but we know from other texts that we're now into the very last of the 40 years. So at the beginning of Numbers 20, we're at the 40th year of the Israelites' time in the desert. Last week, we were kind of near the beginning of that time. We fast-forwarded four decades now in one week. Can you imagine that? 40 years going by quicker than we think. And now we're in the 40th year. And you'll see that that chapter starts off, um, oh, you know, before I get there, let me, let me, uh, let me say, say this. Since we're now at the end of the 40 years, I just want us to get the picture that that generation that had been disciplined by the Lord, the people who were at the youngest part of that then, remember everybody from 20 years old and up was disciplined by God. So now those 20-year-olds, they're, they're 60 years old now, they're older people. And now the children who were born in the year of the discipline of the Lord, they are now 40 years old, and they have children, and they even have grandchildren. So indeed, the fourth generation of people after the year of the discipline of the Lord is, is now living, which brings to mind again, I brought this up last week, but it brings to mind again Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Let me just read it for you one more time. When the Lord revealed his glory to Moses... He passed before him and proclaimed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's that phrase. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now we're to the third and fourth generation. The discipline of the Lord is about to come to an end. Forty years is just about to pass. So with this in mind, chapter 20 begins, you'll see there, by just very briefly describing the death of Miriam, who was Moses' sister. And this is a way of saying that even the most prominent people among the Israelites received the discipline of the Lord. Nobody, uh, or God does not play favorites with anybody, right? God is not impressed with great people, beloved, and when he disciplines his people, he disciplines everybody. And you have to understand, Miriam was like a queen in Israel. She really was. Moses and Aaron and Miriam were the leading family in power in Israel for over 40 years. Think about that. Call to mind your, your favorite president. I don't know who that would be, and I dare not mention anybody in case I offend someone's political sensibilities. Call your favorite president to mind and just imagine that that man had reigned in the United States for four decades and he was good year by year by year by year. He's there, he's there, he's there, he's there. Now we come to the place where his relatives start to die and, and the people get the idea, oh, this generation is passing off the scene. Things are about to change. That's how the Israelites would have felt. Miriam was like a queen in Israel and now she's going. All people are like grass. They're here today, gone tomorrow. But the will, the word, the way of the Lord endures forever and ever. Indeed, Israel could not put their hope in their leadership. They had to put their hope in the Lord. As for the people of Israel, you're going to be shocked to hear that they were grumbling again. But they were. Their water supply ran low. And so they began to grumble against Moses and against Aaron, which grieved them. So they go to the Lord. The Lord tells them, I want you to go gather all the people out to this rock. And when you get them all there, I want you to speak to the rock. And I'm going to do a miraculous thing. I'm going to cause water to come out of a rock. 
Now, I, I lived out in the deserts of California for a number of years, and whenever I got thirsty, I never dreamed about going to a rock to get water to quench my thirst. It never crossed my mind. I never saw any, you know, fountain there to help me, right? It's just not something that you normally do, which is the point. God was about to give his people yet another miracle to say, people, would you live by faith? I'm with you. I'm with you. If you would just call to me rather than grumble to me, I would have provided for your needs. You don't have to grumble. I'm your father. Ask me. I would provide for your needs. But now I'm going to do a miracle to show you that I am with you. Moses, however, had had it. This is now 40 years of a leader dealing with the grumbling of the people. And so he gathers all the people around the appointed rock. And instead of doing precisely what God commanded him to do, he rebuked the people in these words. He said, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out of this rock for you? Shall we bring water out of this rock for you. And then he took his staff, the staff of the Lord, the staff that literally sat in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. This was not Moses' walking stick. This was not a common stick. This thing stayed in the presence of God. It was only taken out for special occasions. He takes a holy, holy thing and he smacks the rock twice, really hard with it. God had told him to do what? God told him to speak, right? God said, speak, I'll make the water come out. But he took the holy staff and he smacked the rock twice and God was gracious. He made the water gush out so fast and so much that it it fed about a million and a half, two million people plus all their livestock. It, It was a miracle, beloved. It was a kind of thing you would not see on any normal day. It was not a natural phenomenon, but Moses had gone too far. Our God is is immensely gracious beyond anything we could ever imagine, but one thing he's clear about is he will not share his glory with anybody, with anybody. And because Moses, the great Moses, the one who spoke with God face to face, because he took the focus off of God and put it onto himself and onto Aaron, God now rebuked the leaders, not the people, but the leaders, and said, now even you, Moses and Aaron, I will not allow you to come into the promised land. Think about that, beloved. This is Moses and Aaron that we're talking about. This is the guy who God said there's not another prophet on the face of the planet that's like Moses, and that was true all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. He said, with other prophets, I let them know my will, but with Moses, I speak face to face with him like a friend, and I allow him to see my form. He had a relationship with Moses that was utterly unique. This was the Moses that interceded to the Lord and literally kept the Lord from destroying Israel multiple times. The shepherd who laid his life down for these sheep and so did Aaron. And now God says, yes, you're prominent. Yes, you've been faithful. Yes, you love me. But yes, I'm going to discipline you and discipline you severely. You will not see the land of promise. Like that former generation, God forgave their sins. So Moses and Aaron are not going to be in hell. And don't take their, their lack of being able to go into the promised land as some kind of symbol that they won't get into heaven because that's not true. Moses is eternally blessed of God. We'll see him there. One way that I know that is that when Jesus came to the earth and went up high on a mountain, remember who appeared with him there? It was Moses and, and Elijah standing right next to him, right? So Moses is utterly blessed of God. But even great men of God, beloved, uh, should not cross certain lines. And when they do, our Father in his love and in his mercy will rebuke them in order to protect his holy name. The discipline of the Lord is not reserved only for some. You know, the higher-ups in the body of Christ are not protected from the discipline of the Lord. There's no protected class, high or low. The discipline of the Lord is for everybody. Why? Because God is a father to everybody. Hebrews says in chapter 12 that only loving fathers discipline their children. And if you don't discipline your child, what that means is you do not love your child. So a a loving father, our loving God, would obviously discipline his children even when they're great. And that's what he did. After this unfortunate incident, Israel began to make movements in the desert that would set them up now to enter into the promised land. Remember, we're, we're less than one year now away from actually going into the land. And in the midst of those movements, the people of Edom would not let them pass through. So let's say Israel's here, and they need to get over here. 
If, if Edom would have given them permission to pass through, they could have just gone straight across the land. And, and if they said no, Israel would have had to come around like this. And so they requested that Edom let them through, but Edom said no. And this is significant because you'll remember who Edom is. Edom is the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Remember that? So you had Jacob and Esau. Esau moved to the south and he became Edom. Those people are still there and they're still mad at Israel. People know how to hold a grudge, right? I mean, people in the Middle East today, we know that this is true. They're still mad about stuff, not that happened last year. They're mad about stuff that happened two, three, four thousand years ago. Believe me, they're still thinking about this. I saw a, 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 a documentary on Alexander the Great. Fascinating. This guy traveled from place to place to place and actually traveled where Alexander traveled. And the people in many villages still remembered the stories of what he did in their villages. And they were still mad at the Greeks about it. Can you imagine? It's been a few years since Alexander was around. All right? And people knew how to hold a grudge. That's what was going on. Indeed, the hope of Israel would not be found in alliances with the nations around them. There was no hope there. No hope in their leadership. There was not going to be any hope in alliances. So they traveled from there. They weren't able to go across. They went south. They come to a place called Mount Hor, and there God commanded Aaron and Moses and Aaron's son Eliezer to go high up on a mountain where people could see him. And there they took the priestly garments off of Aaron and they put them on his son Eliezer. They transferred the priesthood to Eliezer. And on top of that mountain, Aaron breathed his last breath and he died. Another great and significant leader in the people of Israel died. The people, even though they had grumbled and grumbled and grumbled against him, they loved that man. And so the Bible says that they actually wept for him for 30 days. They mourned his passing. And again, we learn the lesson that the hope of Israel was not in their leadership. As great and as long as his service was, he was now gone. But the will and the word of the Lord remained because the priesthood transferred from him to his son. The whole system that provided for the forgiveness of sins endured. Why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord endured. We could not trust in the leaders, but we could entrust in the steadfast love of the Lord for sure. As Israel continued to travel, they engaged in their first battle. You'll see there in those chapters in the southern part of the promised land. And by the grace of God, they were able to conquer a people who had formerly defeated them. Do you remember when Israel, when they refused to go into the promised land the first time, and then the Lord rebuked them? And you remember that some of those people decided to change their mind and go up and try to take the land anyway. You remember that? They put a little force together. They tried to go up and take the land, but they were defeated. Well, those same people who defeated them that time, they engaged in another battle with them now. But now, by the grace and power of God, they got the power to overcome and they actually won the battle. This is a sign that the discipline of the Lord is starting to lift and the power of the Lord for conquering the land is starting to descend upon Israel. It was a sure sign. It was an exciting sign. But as you might expect... Just like that, the people of Israel start grumbling again about food and water. Same old, same old, same thing. Forty years later, same complaints. Complain, complain, complain. God had given them manna as a miracle. They could not see the miracle that it was, and so they complained. If they would have only looked with hope to God and faith in God, he would have given them his joy, but instead they grumbled, and so God was angry with them. Again, very angry. So he sent what the Bible calls fiery serpents of some sort. I don't know exactly what that was, but it was something, and it bit them, and, and it killed some of the people. So again here, we have grumbling. We have a God who hates grumbling and actually is willing to take life because of it. And the people, though, they repent. They run to Moses and say, Moses, we're sorry for what we did. Please cry out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Moses, I want you to put a fiery serpent on a pole and lift it up high. He probably uh, set it in the ground somewhere so people could see it. And he said, anybody who looks to the pole will be healed from their disease. Moses did exactly as God commanded, and God did exactly as he said. Anybody who got bit but then looked to the pole, they looked to God's solution to the problem, was healed from their disease and freed from the consequences of their sins. Now, why did God do that? I don't know all the reasons. But one thing I know for sure is Jesus thought that this was a sign about him. Jesus took this personally. And so out there in the desert with the people who just won't stop grumbling, we see this example of the mercy of God manifesting in the midst of people who just will not be pleased with God, right? These are not worthy people. Neither are we. 
They're not worthy of the mercy of God, but it's a sign and symbol that no matter who you are, I am steadfast in my love, and I will make a way for the forgiveness of your sins. Everybody knows John 3.16. Last week or so, I just caught a piece of one of the the final four, uh, whatever that tournament thing is called, one of those games, and there's a guy with John 3.16 sign, and he kept doing this, folding it, unfolding it to to draw attention to himself. So people know John 3.16, but I wonder if you've heard the rest of the verses, 14 to 18. Jesus speaking. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, be lifted up on a cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we have a disease worse than the fiery serpent thing. And when we look at Jesus Christ, we're healed from our diseases. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ came to be the solution to the problem. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In the day in the wilderness, there was one solution to the problem, beloved, was to look upon that serpent. If you went to a doctor, it wouldn't work. If you just went to the temple, it wouldn't work. If you just prayed to God, it wouldn't work. If you had your friends lay your hands on your bite, it wouldn't work. God had one solution, one way. You had to look to the fiery serpent, and whoever did that was free from their sins. Same with Jesus Christ today. There's one way, one truth, one life. Look to Christ. After this incident, the people of Israel began to travel and travel and travel. They actually hit nine different places. God was training them again for obedience, how to take the camp up, how to march with the camp, how to settle the camp down, and he was preparing them to go in and take the promised land because the ninth place that they settled was very near to the place where they actually crossed the Jordan and took the land. So all these travels that you read about in that part of Numbers that seems a little random, it's not random. God is training them and he's positioning them to go in and take the promised land. They're very close now. They're on the east side of the Jordan, not far from where they're actually going to go in. Two of the kings in that area get scared because they know that God is with these people, Sihon and Og. So they decide to take their armies and come out against Israel, and they do, but Israel roundly defeats them, and not only defeats their armies, but actually captures all of their cities and begins to settle in their cities. You remember, these are the people who said just four decades earlier that we cannot take these people. Remember that? They said they're too big for us, they're too strong for us, we're too weak, they're too fortified. And now, because the blessing of God is upon them, they're taking cities, they're settling down in the area. This was a sure, a sure, sure sign of things to come. Soon, however, the days drew near for them actually to go into the promised land, and so God made them make one more move. He uprooted them from that area and moved them even closer to the Jordan River. You'll see in chapter 22, verse 1, It says that they encamped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. You remember Jericho? Remember, we're going to see this in a few weeks where they walked around the city seven times and the walls fell down and all that. Well, they're now camped in a place where they can see Jericho, okay? So these are not random movements. God is positioning them right at the, at the front of the womb while they will be born into his promises into the promised land. They're ready. The whole thing is ready to be born. Once they were there at that place, there's a king who was reigning right there in that area, a place called Moab. His name was Balak, and he was actually the son of the king, and he feared these people. He had seen what they did to Sihon and Og. He knew that they would come and conquer his people too, and so he did the only thing that he could think to do. He knew that military might would not overcome them because he had seen what they just did to people who were, militarily speaking, stronger than them. And so he said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He sends off to a prophet named Balaam, who is 750 miles away near the Euphrates River up by Iraq, all right? So get, get the picture in your mind. Balaam is a pagan prophet, and he's really famous for helping kings do the things that they do. He's a prophet that kings call upon in their endeavors, one or another. Balak wants the best of the best of the best. 
So he sends a delegation to walk 750 miles. No internet in those days. No postal service. They got on donkeys and they walked 750 miles to persuade this guy to come and do what? Curse the people of Israel. It's the only way they could imagine winning the fight. They're not going to win militarily, so what can I do? Let's get them cursed. Let's speak a curse over them. Balaam receives the delegation. They tell him what they want. He says, all right, once you crash out tonight, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. We'll see what he says. And the Bible says that God Almighty, the God of Jacob and and, and Abraham and, and Isaac, appeared to Balaam and spoke to him. And he said, no, don't go with them because these people are blessed. I love that line. The blessing of God is upon them. It can't be broken. There's nothing that can be done about it. No plans of demons or kings can touch the blessing of God. Amen? So no, Balaam, don't go with him. The next morning he gets up and he's faithful to the Lord. And he says, no, I can't go. God has said that they're blessed. I can't curse. There's nothing I can do beyond God. What can I do? God is God. Last time I checked, I'm not God. There's nothing I can do. Sorry, I can't go with you. They walk back 750 miles with nothing. Right? They get into their king's presence, Balak, and he's not happy. He's not happy. And he won't take no for an answer. So he recruits higher level nobles. And he puts a bigger offer on the table and he sends them back 750 miles back, days upon days upon days upon days. They finally get there. Balaam says, Listen, I already told you, jokers, I can't go. God said no. But then I think, I think Balaam got a little greedy. Oh, that's the offer on the table? Oh, well, why don't you crash out again tonight? Let me talk to the Lord. And so he did. And this time God said to him, God said, listen, if they ask you to go, go with them. So the next day he did. He got up, he packed up his stuff, and he went. But the Bible says God was not pleased with him. If you're reading numbers at full speed, it's a little confusing as to why God is angry. Because God just told him to go. He goes, and now God's angry. But if you read the whole story, you've got to get all the way to the end, you realize that Balaam, his heart was full of greed. He was trying to take advantage of the, of the deal. Listen, when God speaks a word, you don't have to go back to him and ask him what he said. If he says, I'm going to bless, he means, I'm going to bless, right? He's not a hot and cold God. I'm going to bless today. Oh, I'll come back to him a week later. Oops, changed my mind. I decided to change the entire destiny of humanity in the week that you were waiting. No, it, God doesn't like that. Balaam should have trusted in the word of God as being firm, but he did not. Why? Because he was greedy. He was greedy. So he heads out onto the the journey, and he's on his donkey, his his faithful old donkey. And they're going down the road, you know. This, This dumb donkey has eyes to see something that Balaam doesn't have eyes to see. God has sent a mighty warring angel with his sword drawn to stand in the road and stop him from going to curse his people. And I love that. You need to think about that. You need to take that personally. This very day, there might be demons trying to curse your life. Too bad. God has put a warring angel in the way and there's nothing they can do about it. God's armies are mightier than any armies. So he's standing in the way and the donkey's like, whoa, I don't want any part of that. So he goes off the road. But Balaam doesn't know what's going on. So he's like, what's up with this crazy donkey? And he smacks him. He's disciplining him, right? So they continue. They come to this place where there's a vineyard on one side and a vineyard on the other and a a wall and it's kind of narrow. And there the angel is again. And the donkey's like, oh no, what do I do? Goes off to the right, smashes Balaam's leg against the wall. Doesn't make him happy, right? smack he smacks the donkey again disciplining his donkey a third time they go forward the donkey sees the angel and he's just like you know what i've had enough and he just lays down in the road he just just lays straight down and balaam's like what is up with this donkey smacks him again and now the lord does something unique miraculous and in my mind hilarious hilarious You may doubt that this is true, but I don't. God can create the universe and sustain it all by the word of his power. Right now, he's managing over a 100 billion galaxies and upholding every quark in the universe just by his power. So if he wants a donkey to speak, it's no big deal to God. It's no big deal to God. So he actually allows this donkey to speak, and the donkey basically looks up and says, what's up with this? Why are you beating me? 
And Balaam, the funniest part to me is that Balaam doesn't stop and say to himself, wait a second, a donkey's talking to me. Like, like something's wrong with this picture. Am I crazy? Is, what's going on? A donkey is speaking with me. No, he just starts conversing with the donkey. And he says, hey man, you're driving me nuts. You're making me look like a fool in front of all these nobles, these important people who are about to pay me a lot of money. What are you doing? You're lucky I don't have a sword, donkey, because if I had a sword, I would kill you right now. And the donkey looks at him and says, hey man, have I ever acted like this with you? Have I ever done this kind of thing for you? And I mean, the donkey's reasoning with him, and he actually is out-reasoning Balaam. And Balaam says, you know, come to think of it, no, you've never done this. And right that moment, the Bible says God opened his eyes, and God and, and Balaam saw the angel. He saw the drawn sword. He saw him standing in the road, and he fell to his face in worship, just like that. The angel spoke to him and said, Balaam, I am here because you're the stubborn donkey. I'm here because you're the one who won't listen. And if it wasn't for this donkey here, I would have killed you three times. I would have killed you. So Balaam struck to the heart. He's like, oh man, this is not good. I should have listened to God. I should have remained firm. And he says to the angel, I'll go back. I'll go back. Now the angel does say, no, no, don't go back. I want you to continue, but be very, very, very careful to do only what I have told you to do. Period and end of story. Nothing more. So Balaam finally arrives, Balak greets him, they offer sheep and oxen to their gods, and then he brings him up to a place the next day where they can see only a fraction of the people. Balaam the prophet commands that seven altars be built and seven bulls and seven rams be sacrificed on them all, which they did. And after that, Balaam went off to be with the Lord, and the Lord put a word of blessing in his mouth rather than a word of curse. He comes back to Balak, and all the nobles, the most powerful people of that area, are standing there with him. Probably, he lifts his hands up over the people, and he speaks a blessing over the people of Israel, and he's being paid handsomely to speak a curse. Balak's not happy with this. He's pretty angry about it, but Balaam says to him, listen, I told you, I can only speak what the Lord gives me to speak, and the Lord gave me a blessing. Why? Because he's steadfast in his love, beloved. I don't care how many powerful people are trying to curse God's people. It will not work. He will turn it into a blessing. So Balak said, I got an idea. Let's go to another place. Maybe, maybe it'll work there. They go to another place, build seven more altars, sacrifice seven more bulls, seven more rams. Balaam goes to be with the Lord again. The Lord puts another blessing in his mouth. He comes back again, probably lifts his hands up again and speaks another blessing over the people of Israel. And now Balak the king is really, really, really upset with this one because this time he said that basically there is no way in the world to oppose these people because the blessing of God is upon them and they are going to devour all of the prey that God God has given them to devour. There's nothing that can be done. Oh, was Balak angry with this one? He was not happy. So he says to him, Would you just stop speaking altogether. Say nothing good or bad. Just shut it up. Zip it! <laughs> just don't speak at all. Because you keep blessing and I hired you to curse. But for some reason he says, he says, well, let's try it one more time. So they go, they build seven more altars. They sacrifice seven more bulls, seven more rams. But this time Balaam says, I'm not going to go be with God. There's no point in it. And he turns his face, the Bible says, toward the wilderness where he can see all the tribes of Israel now. He saw with his eyes what we have to imagine in our minds. But it must have been glorious. Beloved, he saw the camp of the Lord. He saw the tabernacle set up in all of its glory. He saw that Levites camped around the tabernacle in the order God had commanded. He saw the tribes of Israel, three by three by three, camped around the Levites as God has commanded. He saw the banners of the tribes of Israel all flying high to the glory of God, facing in toward the tabernacle in honor and worship to God. Balaam saw it with his eyes. And the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit now. This pagan prophet, beloved, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he spoke a blessing over the people of Israel. And he said this in 2415. And he took up his discourse. Actually, you know what? I think there was one before that. I'm sorry. There's two parts to this. He spoke, he spoke a blessing first, and then, and then Balak was upset with that again. You see there in 24.9, 
where he says, blessed are those who bless you and then cursed are those who curse you. And then you'll see there right after 24.9 that Balak becomes really, really angry, probably ready to kill Balaam at that time. And now, in, with really probably the threat of death upon his life, Balaam looks out at the people and says this, beginning in verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Do you remember before his eyes were closed? He couldn't even see the angel of the Lord. And now his eyes are open beyond what he can imagine. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his knees, with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. What's he talking about? A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. And then he went on to prophesy about the conquering of places, beloved, that no king in the history of Israel had ever conquered. Joshua did not conquer the cities that he mentions next. David never conquered the cities that he mentions next. Solomon never conquered the cities that he mentions next. And under Solomon, the kingdom was as big as it ever got. So what's he saying? You know what? I think he's seeing Jesus Christ. I think God Almighty opened up the eyes of a pagan prophet to see things that nobody could imagine. Balak had brought him there to curse this people, and in the flesh they looked like a destitute, cursable kind of a people. But in the spirit, Balaam saw the glory of God resting upon a nation that would be blessed for the blessing of all the nations of the world. He saw the destiny of humanity when he saw the person of Christ raising up out of Israel not only to conquer enemies, enemies, but to save everyone who would look to the cross and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, thousands of years before Jesus walked this earth, Balaam saw a glimpse of him. Yes, Jesus Christ is actually in the Old Testament. We're not reading this stuff in there. He is there, and it is glorious. It is glorious. With this final oracle, Balaam just went back home. There was nothing left to do. And Balak went his way, but he was upset because he did not get what he had paid so handsomely for. And the reason he didn't get it is because of one thing, beloved, the steadfast love of the Lord. There's a line in here. I didn't know it exactly where it was, so I, I apologize. I don't remember exactly what verse, but it said, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel... I, that, that phrase hit me so hard because do you know who we're talking about? We're talking about the people who grumbled, 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 rebelled, complained, grumbled, grumbled. When they got done doing that, they grumbled and rebelled and complained some more. These are people who are not worthy of the blessing of God, but he promised something to Abraham and he kept his promise. The steadfast love of the Lord was the hope of Israel, period, no matter what, no changing his mind. The Bible says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of, of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. When God speaks a word of blessing, I don't care what Satan is up to today. He cannot undo the blessing of God. He cannot undo it. Amen? God has spoken his word of blessing over his people. This morning, as I was coming back up, there's a place where I hide out, and I'm not telling anybody where I go hide out to pray on Sunday mornings. As I was coming back up the elevator... I guess I just gave you a hint. Oh, please don't go look. But as I was coming back up, I, I was praying. I said, Lord, give me eyes to see your people like in the way that you see them. Help me to see. As soon as I walked in this room, I felt like I saw like the blood of Jesus Christ and his grace and mercy covering every one of you. Covering you. Do you know how precious you are to him? Do you have any idea how sacred and precious you are to him? He shed his blood on the cross, and on that cross, he was thinking of you and me personally. He was. He was precious, precious to him. And he has said, 
in Ephesians 1, he has said, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. The Lord has spoken and he will not change his mind. Period. Period. If you believe in Christ, that is your reality. That is your reality. The blessing of God rests upon you. Satan can harass you, yes. Can he do anything about the blessing? No, he cannot. Why? Because God Almighty is the one in control. Nobody can take on God. Amen? Nobody, nobody can take on God. The covenant that God made with Israel was a sign and shadow of things to come. The covenant God made with us in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that sign. If God was faithful to the thing that was a sign and shadow to come, think of how faithful he will be to us who have fulfilled the, or have entered into the fulfillment of these things. God was faithful to the sign, he will be faithful to the fulfillment. The everlasting steadfast love of the Lord will rest upon us forever and ever and ever and ever. That's our reality. That's our reality. The steadfast love of the Lord is the steadfast anchor of our hope and there's nothing else. There's nothing else in this life. So I want to ask you again the question that I asked at the beginning. What are you hoping in right now? Really. I, I want to encourage you. Go spend some time with the Lord. Ask him how he would answer this question. Don't be afraid. God is on your side. He might reveal, but he will transform. His idea is to get your anchor out of other stuff and put your anchor in him. That's what he wants to do. He wants to anchor your life in something that is steadfast and immovable and unshakable so that the stock market could totally disintegrate and you would still have joy. The United States could be taken over by some foreign powers and you would still have joy because your hope is in a greater kingdom, in a greater God, in an immovable, unshakable God. That's what he wants for you. What, what are you hoping in right now? Oh, how I pray that it will be the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness to Israel. I thank you for your faithfulness toward us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the beauty of the thing you've done for us on the cross. I thank you that your blessing rests upon us in a way that it will never, ever, ever be taken away. I thank you that though our enemies are plotting against us and though our flesh is even rising up against you, that in the end they will not succeed and our flesh will not succeed, but Jesus Christ will conquer and succeed in making himself a people, purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are eager to worship him and make known his glory. Oh, Father, how I praise you for that. How I praise you for your word that rests upon us. And I pray now that you would cause it to seep into the depths of our hearts, just like rain seeps into the soil. God, help us to believe and help us to live by hope in God alone. In the mighty and merciful name of our loving Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.